Well, hello, everybody. Good to see you. Everybody online right now, wherever you are, glad you're here. Everybody here in the room as well. And by the way, behind me, this is not a, a guillotine, okay? So some of you are nervous right now. You're thinking, man, I've been bad this week and wrong day to go to church. But that's, that's not what it is. It's a drawbridge. We'll explain it. Uh, we'll explain it later. But really are glad that you are here. And, and if your ears have been itching, if you know that phrase uh, over the last couple months, it's because I've been talking a lot about you. And uh, because of the book and all that, I've been on all these podcasts and radio shows and things like that. And really all I'm doing is, is talking about what God is doing in and through you. And we've, we want to keep stretching and growing and learning. I'm not saying we've arrived anywhere, but I will say I'm bragging on you a lot. So thank you for being the kind of church you are and, uh, and allowing God to use you to impact not just our community, but other churches and other stuff too. And just like we're learning from other churches as well. So um, thank you for being you. And today we are finishing our series called Rebranding Christianity. And if you've been in the series, we've said this pretty much every week, that by rebranding Christianity, we're actually not talking about coming up with a new brand. Like the 2,000-year-old brand doesn't work anymore because, you know, emerging generations or jettisoning Christianity all that. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying the opposite. What we're talking about is going back 2,000 years to the brand as Jesus gave it when he launched the church. And he said, this is how you'll be known. And we've been talking about how there's been some mission drift away from that. And how do we get back to being known for what Jesus told us to be known for? And he was very clear. John 13, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you what? Love one another, right? It's pretty simple. It's not hard to understand. He, he's, he's not ambiguous. He's really clear. He's not saying, now, this is how you should be known by people who don't know Jesus. Like, you should be known for these 25 things. Memorize them. It's one thing. Just love people the way I love people. That's all I want you to do. That's how I want you to be known. If you're going to impact this world and draw people to Jesus and, and what, all that he teaches, just be people who love people like Jesus loves people. And simple, right? But not easy. It's simple to get. It's simple to understand. But, that's not, but it's not easy to love like Jesus. In fact, we'll see this at the end of the talk. We can't even, we can't even do that on our own. We need God's empowerment in our life to even love at that level. And when we talk about loving like Jesus, it's simple but not easy. Part of the not easy is there are tensions that come when we try to apply that in culture and apply that in relationships with other people. And you maybe have, have been wrestling with some of those tensions um, in, the, in the series. Like the one that we're going to focus on today is, well, what about truth? Like, I, I get that we want to be gracious and we want to be loving and we want to be kind. And all, but does that mean we just sort of throw away truth? It's like, well, oh, don't just be whatever, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Is, is that what we're saying? And, and, and so we, and, and it's not. And so we're like, well, how do we, you know, how do we manage that tension? And, and to feel that tension a little bit is why we just did the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. Or I'll sing it. All you need is love. Doop, 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 doop. Right? I, I'll, I, yeah, I'll keep, I'll stop. But, uh. But you think about that, right? All you need, I mean, take Christianity out of it. Is it even true? All you need is love. Like, what about other things like deodorant? You know, that's good, right? Or a toothbrush. So maybe love and deodorant and a toothbrush, right? Or um, it's fall. Like, don't we need football? I think we do, right? Or Chick-fil-A. Like, 
you got to have that. So you can add a lot of things. And you, maybe you put love at the top of the list, but, but then take that into our Christianity. And you say, well, all you need is love. And, and that can feel like, because that really is what Jesus said, what it boils down to. But, but it can feel like, yeah, all we need is love and we, and we don't need truth and all that. Because truth is polarizing. Truth is divisive. So we're not going to, we're not going to, let's just kind of shove that down. Is that what we're saying? And the answer is no. Because truth and love are linked. Truth and love are symbiotic. You can't have real truth without real love or real love without real truth. Like, you know, so love will point people to truth. It's not loving to act like what is true is not true. And what is true, and we're talking about is what Jesus teaches, is what Romans, in Paul in Romans, calls good and beautiful and perfect. Like, good and pleasing and perfect. It's, it's better. Right? Like, we want people. We, I want to align my life around truth. I want people to love me enough to point me to truth. Well, that's what love does that. And truth, the greatest truth in the world, is love. When Jesus was asked to boil it all down, he just said, oh yeah, what real true spirituality is, he said it's about loving God and loving people. And the greatest truth and the most profound truth in the world is God's unconditional, unmerited, unending love for us. So love and truth aren't, they don't like cancel each other out. They exist together. And yet sometimes in relationship, there are these tensions like between love or grace and truth that we feel, right? We want to be gracious and yet we also want to be truthful. And how do we do that? Especially when it gets tricky in a world like this to do that. And and today we're going to talk about that because this is something that we really do want to get right. And if we don't get it right, then we end up hurting people. Either way, either we hurt people because we just let them, we don't, we don't challenge each other to align our lives around God, what God teaches. Or we hurt people because we reject them instead of love them and, and are not gracious. And, and some of you have been hurt that way by church and, and you come here with that and I'm sorry you have church hurt and I hope we won't be a cause of church hurt. Let me know if we are. We're not perfect. But, you know, and, and then... Even if you're not a Christian, right, you want to get this right, like, because you don't have to be a Christian to have convictions. And, and another way to say this is, how do I live in a world and, and have convictions, and yet at the same time be gracious and loving? How do, how do we do that? And sometimes those decisions are hard in a relationship. Do I go to that? Do I go to this? Do I accept that? Do I say anything there? How do we manage all that? And the way we're going to do that, or the way we're going to look at it, is by looking at Jesus Because the mandate is to love like he loved. So how did he live in this tension of grace and truth in in a way that was loving? And we're going to do that by looking at two two different ways. We're going to see one passage, just spend a short time there, where one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named John, gives a big theological perspective. So he gives like the big picture. And then we're going to see it, it's abstract. And then we're going to see it in a concrete way, in a story, to illustrate it. Just to see how Jesus related and and lived with that grace, truth, tension. So first, the big theology perspective in John 1.14. This is what John says. The Word, and it's talking about Jesus, became flesh and made us dwelling among us. So what he's letting us know is what Christians call the incarnation. So it's that 
God, Jesus existed before he was born that we celebrate at Christmas, right? He's God. He's always existed. What we celebrate at Christmas is when he took on flesh and came here. So the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. So we know what God is like because we've seen him. Jesus is God who came here. Full of grace and truth. So John is letting us know that God is like this. Jesus is like this. That when Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. And John is interesting because he was a fisherman, not highly educated. But he wrote like four books, well, five books of the, of the New Testament. And he was actually a really good writer and very careful. And one of the careful ways we see here in, in this passage, it says full of grace and truth. But actually, he's a little more careful than that. It's full of grace and full of truth. And what he's saying is Jesus was 100, always 100% full of grace and 100% full of truth. It's not like he was 50-50 or 20-80 or 80-20 or whatever we wanted to be. He was always full of grace and full of truth, meaning he never compromised either one. He never compromised grace. He never compromised truth. But there's a tension there, right? How did he live out that tension? Well, the order, and you see this in the way Jesus relates... The order is important. For Jesus, as he related to sinners, and this is without exception, with religious people is a little different, but with with sinners like me, normal people, grace always precedes truth. Meaning he relates with grace, a wide welcome, and in relationship, points people to truth over time. And the way I've started to think about it is this way, a wide welcome to a narrow path. That what Jesus modeled for us in, in, in this grace, truth, tension, in our relationships, and our world, and people, is a wide welcome. He had the widest of welcomes. As we're going to see, he made religious people really nervous because his welcome was so wide. A wide welcome to a narrow path. An increasingly narrow path. And not narrow like mean or cruel or whatever. It's actually loving and gracious because Jesus is God who created the world. He knows how life is designed to flourish. He wants what is best for us. And he's been gracious enough to reveal truth. He just wants us to walk in truth because he wants our lives to be good and pleasing and perfect, as Paul said in Romans 12. He wants what's best for us. And so therefore, a wide welcome to a narrow path. And I want us to illustrate that so that we can live the same way in our relationships, a wide welcome to a narrow path. And we're going to see that illustrated in one story. And this, the, the hardest thing for preparing for this talk this week was choosing one story because I, I had a bunch that I'd let out that I could, like written out that I could use. It's like, oh, that'd be so awesome. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Like some of you are familiar if you're familiar with the Bible. If you're not, don't worry about it. Um, you'll get there if you want to. But uh, one of them is John 4, the woman at the well. And we'll actually talk about that at the end of November, talk about her. And that's a great story to illustrate this. Another one is the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And you may have known, you may know that story where he says, again, this grace truth thing, right? He says in grace, hey, I don't condemn you. But then he says, truth, stop sinning. Like, stop doing this. Like, why are you doing that? Like, don't do this anymore. And then he looks at his disciples and he said, you know, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save the world, right? Because that's what truth does. It saves us from a life that is, uh, is one that none of us want. So that'd be incredible. That'd be great. I love that story. But I had to pick one and it wasn't that one. 
And the one I picked is the choosing of one of the disciples that was the most surprising choice. And nobody would have ever guessed that Jesus would pick it. Pick this person. And everybody was pretty upset about it. All the religious people. He would pick this person. And some of you know who I'm talking about maybe. Um, of the 12 disciples. It was Dopey. Oh, no, that's a dwarf. Sorry. No, no, no. Uh, Matthew. And because Matthew was considered the most sinful of people. Now, I want you to think about that. Like, if I asked you, who's, who's the most sinful of sin? Like, who's, who's the biggest sinner, the biggest sin, biggest sinner you can imagine? And I don't know what would come to your mind. Because in some of you are thinking, well, all sin is sin. And I, yes, all sin is sin, but there are sins worse than others. I could make fun of somebody or I could end their life. Those are two very different sins, right? So some sins are way bigger, right? So if you're going if you're to think, wow, who's the worst kind of sinner? Like if I pulled somebody up and, and said, this is what this person did, you, you throw up in your mouth a little bit, kind of like it's that kind of like who's the, I don't know who that is for you. Maybe it's an A&M fan or a Texas fan or an Alabama fan. I don't know. You know, or, okay, seriously, maybe, I don't know what it is. Like what sin, like real sin, like what it would be. But 2,000 years ago, everybody would say the same thing if you were in Jesus' day and you lived in, in Israel, and that'd be a tax collector, which I know sounds weird to us. And we've talked about that over the years. But, but a tax collector was a, they were bad people doing a bad thing in bad ways. They were hired by Rome to tax their own people, and they were oppressive and typically extortionist and dishonest. They had the muscle of Roman, of Roman soldiers to help them. And Rome just struck a deal with them. This is how much we want you to squeeze out of people. And the way you earn your living is squeeze more. We don't care how much more you squeeze as long as we get what we want and you can do whatever. And these were not good people. And sometimes I think with Matthew, who was chosen to be one of the 12 disciples, it's kind of romantic to think about, well, I bet Matthew actually was a good tax collector. Like all the other ones were bad, but he was kind of good. And, and he was just trapped in a bad situation and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And maybe, but I doubt it. He was a bad person doing a bad thing. And, and that, that's instructive because Jesus doesn't choose us either because we're good. He chooses us. It opens the door to us because he loves us and he, ha- he sees a better future for us and invites us to a better future. And that's why he chose Matthew. He could see who Matthew was destined to be because he's the creator. But that choice was a surprising choice to everybody, including Matthew. And here's the passage, Mark 2. When Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him, as he walked along, he saw Levi, whose uh, other name is Matthew, same person. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Now, they would have had other interactions before this, but he invites him as a rabbi to be one of his disciples, which is a really big invitation. That was like being accepted to Harvard or something. It was just this incredible opportunity that people would not say no to, especially with a rabbi like Jesus that was getting a lot of buzz. Incredible. But everybody else, especially the religious people, but everybody would be like, he what? He chose him? A tax collector? But it, and so people were very kind of nervous, but it gets worse because it gets more shocking. Verse 15, later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. 
along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. So two more big shockers. Uh, one shock is the dinner invitation and Jesus' acceptance of that dinner invitation to this sinner party. Now, that can be shocking in our culture, but, it, but in that culture, it was a way bigger deal. Because table fellowship in that culture was a big deal. Uh, when you came into, if you went into the home of another person or you invited people into your home for table fellowship, that, you were saying, this is my people, this is my tribe. It was, uh, you didn't have table fellowship with people who were not aligned with you. It's not like us where he's like, we're just going to dinner. It was a big deal in that culture, which is why, by the way, this is a bonus. You didn't pay for this. Um, in Psalm 23 in the Old Testament, the most well-known Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want all that. And then it shifts from the shepherd imagery to where it says, the Lord prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What he's saying is that God is preparing a table. He's inviting him to David to his table as a show display to the enemies that, hey, this is my guy. Because that's what that meant. This is, this is my person. And so if you're going to do something to him, you've got to go through me. It, it was that, that, that's the, that, that was that culture. So for the Pharisees and the religious leaders, it's unthinkable that you would ever go into the home of tax collectors and other notorious sinners, prostitutes and whoever else they picked on as notorious sinners like that. Be like, you would never do that. Because... You were saying, I'm one of the, that's who I am, and that these are my people. And so it would be really shocking that Matthew would have asked, and even more shocking that Jesus would have accepted and gone with his disciples to that party. But what I love about that is Matthew just doesn't have, he's like, oh, I know my, my people are going to love Jesus. These, my center friends are going to love Jesus, and he's going to love them. But it created confusion with the religious people, which is why people called Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees did. Which, yeah, he's like, yeah, I am. But they also called him a drunkard and a glutton. Because that's what happened at those parties. In these kind of feasts, they would eat too much and throw up and eat more. They would drink too much and get drunk. And other things would happen there that weren't so great. And how could you go to a party like that? He must be a glutton and a drunkard because, look, he's going to these parties where that's happening. Jesus wasn't doing that. He wasn't eating too much, drinking too much, or doing whatever too much. And I think Matthew knew he, he could, Jesus can handle himself. My friends may be a little out of control, but Jesus can handle himself. But Jesus didn't mind the confusion. He didn't mind the controversy. Because these were people he loved. But it was shocking. The second little shocking thing is, is Mark's little parenthetical statement. When he said there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. Among this kind... Uh, many people of this kind. It's kind of like the movie, You People. You know, it's kind of an offensive thing to say that, so don't. But, but you know, you people, like what people? Well, he says, disreputable sinners. Now, of Jesus' followers, like he had his 12 disciples, and they have these other rings of followers, people who kind of left their normal life and was follow, were following Jesus around and starting to wrap their lives around him and his teaching. And he says, many of those followers were disreputable sinners. Which would have been shocking to the religious people. How can you not chase these people away? And it's not that they used to be disreputable sinners 20 years ago. 
you know, like testimonies you hear. Oh yeah, you know, 20 years ago I used to drink too much and I had, I didn't say good, I didn't have good language and I slept around and all, but then I met Jesus and then I start, you know, and all that. And that was 20 years ago and you're telling your 20 years ago story. For these people it was like last week, like last night. These were, I mean, they were on the journey, but barely. Like we're talking wide welcome to a narrow path. They're in the wide welcome part of that process. And for the Pharisees, they'd be like, you got to chase these people away. They can't be your followers. But for Jesus, right, totally different because he had a wide welcome to a narrow path. We'll get there. But so you, you have this tension all over the place and it's just too much for the Pharisees, the religious leaders. So in verse 16, but when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Nice. Why does he eat with such scum? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And yes, that was a dig at the Pharisees who thought they were righteous. Who didn't seem to know they were sinners too. And that's why they would, most of them would never come into the kingdom of God. That it's actually better to be a sinner who knows you're a sinner than a righteous person who's living in denial. And, and they missed the kingdom of God because of that. These sinners didn't because they were coming to Jesus. But when he says healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. You see this contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the contrast is how they view people. And so for the Pharisees, Jesus had the eyes of a doctor. We'll see that. The Pharisees had the, adopted the eyes toward these so-called notorious sinners of a judge. So they put themselves in a different category, put themselves on a pedestal. Jesus is the only one who deserved to be on that pedestal, but he didn't choose that, those eyes because they're sinners too. But they didn't see it that way. So they put themselves on this pedestal and looked down and rejected these people in the name of truth, in the name of righteousness. Because these were terrible sinners. Like, how can you just accept these people? How can you, how can you just relate to these people? You've got to say something. You've got to do something. Which is why I have this drawbridge up here. Because the way the Pharisees related to people, sinful people, was with a drawbridge. That, hey, if you, if you agree with me, or you begin to get your life together, if you, like, then... Um, I, I may let down the drawbridge, but I can't let the, down the drawbridge yet. Because for them, acceptance equals agreement. And that's the way religious people are today. That acceptance equals agreement. So that if you accept somebody, well, how can you do that? You're, you're confusing because, you know, you're just, you're, you're like agreeing with them or you're signaling agreement with them. You've got to make that clear. You've got to point that. And Jesus didn't do that. Now, he didn't hide truth. I'm not saying that. But for Jesus, for the Pharisees, acceptance equals agreement. So until you agree with me or get your life together or whatever, then the drawbridge is up. And that's religion. I'll accept you if. And every, and every legalist has their different list. But Jesus didn't relate that way. For Jesus... His drawbridge, well, his, he didn't come to just leave a drawbridge up. He came 
to build a bridge and leave it down for everybody as they are. And, he, and, and, and if I didn't borrow this from one community church, I would cut the rope. But I don't want to tell Conway, sorry, I ruined your bridge. Um, so I won't cut it. But that's what Jesus did. He didn't come to raise a drawbridge and, hey, you can, be, you, you can come if the bridge was open to anybody, as is. Wide, widest welcome possible. Now, yes, once you get on that bridge, it's a wide welcome to a narrow path and a path of righteousness and, and aligning our life increasingly around truth. But it's in the context of relationship because for Jesus, acceptance did not equal agreement. It wasn't if you agree with me, then I can accept you. He accepted people way before that because it's in relationship where we find transformation in relationship with Jesus. Another way to say that, if you're going to make a formula, some of you like formulas, so I'll give you one, of, of just how Christian life works. That grace plus truth plus time equals transformation. Grace starts there. In relationship with Jesus, we begin to build our life around truth. That takes time. Sanctification is the Bible word for it, of being transformed. It takes time. And we need to give each other loads of patience along that journey. But grace plus truth over time equals transformation. And I would say grace plus truth in the context of community. We help each other on this journey. Over time, we become different people. Matthew started out one way. He became very different. But it was in the context of relationship. It was in the context of grace. In the context of acceptance. Because ultimately what we're trying to do is see people transformed in relationship with Jesus. And we come as we are, but he loves us too much to stay that way. But our job is to introduce people to Jesus, not get people to agree with us. And those are two very different things. Like, um, and, and by the way, Jesus is really good at transformation. People like me think he really needs my help. Uh, and, but... When you introduce somebody to Jesus and then the Holy Spirit, God, comes into their life, he's actually pretty good at what he does, at transformation. And transforming from the inside out, not legalism, which is aligned with truth so that you can be accepted. It's you're accepted as you are, and then, but that's the grace, that's grace, that's the gospel. And then in relationship, he begins to change us and grow us. And yeah, we challenge each other and, and all that, but it's... It's in relationship with Jesus. And that helps us when we think about, well, what is our job in culture? And in the book, you'll, there's more nuance here and more detail there. But, like, don't we want in culture to stand for truth and make sure people agree with us and, 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 and represent morality in a culture that's becoming increasingly immoral? And, and should we do? And understand that our mission is actually not to create moral people. Our, our mission is to introduce people to Jesus who will transform and guess what? Help people come around righteousness and, and morality, but it's changing from the inside out. It's not the outside in. It's not legislating our morality or, or getting people to agree with us or even getting people to be moral without Jesus. Because that's just legalism. And the truth is, people can't have life change without Jesus anyway. We can't grow. I mean, why do we? That's why Paul said. To the Corinthians, who got confused on this, he said, who are we to judge those outside the church? Meaning, why would we impose our standards on people outside of Christianity because they haven't signed up? Why would they think like we do? Why would they align their world around what God teaches? Like, 
They haven't signed up for that. And they don't even have the Holy Spirit to enable them to do it anyway. Now, we can help each other do that. We should judge each other. We should challenge each other. We should make sure that we do all we can to encourage and challenge and admonish and every, uh, whatever it takes. Confront each other, whatever, to say, hey, you know what? Don't you want to be on path? Don't you want to be better? Don't, can I help you do it? For us, yeah, for believers in relationship with God, absolutely. But for people outside the faith, Paul's saying, why would we do that? Because our job is to introduce people to Jesus and see change from the inside out, which, yes, when that happens and you have enough people who are changed from the inside out, it begins to change whole communities and whole cultures, and it's a beautiful and wonderful thing. But it's life change in relationship with Jesus. It's grace plus truth over time. Another way to say that is a wide welcome to a narrow path. And what Jesus wants for us is to have as his people just a wide as welcome. So let's talk about wide welcome and then we'll talk about narrow paths just a little bit. Um, on the wide welcome, I remember when I was in high school, I got connected to a book that's still one of my favorite books. It's called Messy Spirituality by Mike Iaconelli and you want to look it up. He's in heaven now. Um, but it was, it was a story that gave an image for me that was, I still, I've had in my head for decades. And so I'm just going to pass it on to you. In the Second World War, a group of soldiers was fighting in the rural countryside of France. During an intense battle, one of the American soldiers was killed. His comrades did not want to leave his body on the battlefield and decided to give him a Christian burial. They remembered a church a few miles behind the front lines whose grounds included a small cemetery surrounded by a white fence. After receiving permission to take their friend's body to the cemetery, they set out for the church, leaving just before sunset. A priest, his bent over back and frail body betraying his many years, responded to their knocking. His face, deeply wrinkled and tan, was the home of two fierce eyes that flashed with wisdom and passion. Our friend was killed in battle, they blurted out, and we wanted to give him a church burial. Apparently, the priest understood what they were asking, although he spoke with very broken English. I'm sorry, he said, but we can only bury those of the same faith here, really denomination. Weary, after many months of war, the soldiers simply turned to walk away. But, the old priest called out after them, you can bury him outside the fence, Cynical and exhausted, the soldiers dug a grave and buried their friend just outside the white fence. They finished after nightfall. The next morning, the entire unit was ordered to move on, and the group raced back to the, to the little church for one final goodbye to their friend. When they arrived, they couldn't find the grave site. Tired and confused, they knocked on the door of the church. They asked the old priest if he knew where they had buried their friend. It was dark last night, and we were exhausted. We must have been disoriented. A smile flashed across the old priest's face. After you left last night, I could not sleep. So I went outside early this morning and I moved the fence. What I love about that is that Jesus didn't just move the fence. He knocked down the fence. He came to knock down every fence that separated God and people. He came to reconcile people. His drawbridge is always open. To people as is. And yes, to walk in a wide welcome to a whole new life that's better and aligns with truth, but, but starts with grace. And as a church, as his people, that's who we're called to be. Like, like one of the things that I 
if this happens about once a week, I get an email or a phone call or I talk to somebody after church who asks me this question. Is Chase Oaks Church a church that I could really be? Like, would I be welcome there? And usually it's because of some past failure or some current sin struggle or maybe a sexual orientation or a, something that's happened in their life to them. Not even sin, but just something that happened to them. And they just want to know, is, is this a place that I can, would I be accepted here? And I hate that anybody would ever have to ask that question of God's family. Because this is Jesus' church. And we're to have as wide a welcome as he is. And, 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 and as we welcome people over time in a relationship with Jesus, yeah, we're going to encourage each other to increasingly align our lives around truth. But it's a wide welcome to a narrow path. And we've got to always make sure that everybody knows, yeah, of course, the door is always open. There's no, I mean, this is what um, Jesus said in Matthew 11. Then Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. A wide welcome to your narrow path. Wide welcome. Come, all you. Not some of you. All you who are weary and heavy laden. What does that mean? Weary and heavy laden. Weary from sin. Weary from rejection. Weary from religion. Just come. And I'll give you way more to do. I'll give you rest. Because it's about grace. It's about what he's done for us so that we can be accepted by God. A wide welcome. But to a narrow path, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy. He's saying, I, I, I want to I accept you as you are, and, and let's walk together. And he'll do the heavy lifting. That's why, it's, that's why it's easy for us, because he does the work of transformation. We can't transform ourselves. It's not about us trying to do better. It's about us relating to God and taking the steps that he calls us to take. And he will empower us and help us do that. It's a wide welcome to a narrow path. Let me walk with you into a whole new life. How do we manage the grace, truth, tension? It's a wide welcome to a narrow path. And so what does that mean? Just make it even more practical. Well, it means a couple, few things for us. Just to make it more concrete. First thing is, know that you are welcome here. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you struggle with, what's happened to you. God loves you beyond imagination. And he knows what you can be. And he sees it. And he wants you to know it. He wants you to see it. He wants you to walk into it. That's why Jesus came. The, the, it's wide open for you. A wide welcome to a narrow path. And can you be accepted? Can you be here? Absolutely, as is. Don't, don't try to get your life together, Bill, because we can't. That's what he, he wants to do that. One of my favorite stories that illustrates that is actually not from our church, from another church up in Colorado, um, Flatirons Church. And their slogan is, me too. I shared this a few years ago, but their slogan is, me too. And it was before the me too movement. So it kind of ruined their church slogan a little bit. But 
Um, but their slogan has been Me Too for like 20 years or 15 years. When the, because shortly after, not long after the church started, um, Jim Bergen, the pastor, was up on stage. And, and he, was, he had somebody up there sharing their story. And it was somebody who is in a category of people that often feels rejected by church. And he was a same-sex attracted person. He's a gay person, didn't know Jesus yet, and, and, and I think living that lifestyle and all that too. So he was, you know, and, and so he just, so Jim was just saying, hey, I just want to know your story because everywhere he'd gone in church had ended in like utter rejection and pain until he got to Flatirons. And so he's just telling his story and, and how he's increasingly open to Jesus and, and willing to do whatever Jesus would call him to do and all that, but... And so they're having this conversation, and, and Jim said, hey, you know what? I mean, you know that we're always going to affirm what Jesus affirms about sexuality, marriage between a man and a woman. And, and, and we'd always want to, you know, I mean, just we accept you as you are, and, and just like all of us. And we all have ways that we need to align around truth. And, and we, so he wasn't ambiguous about that. But after having this conversation, he, when it was time to end, he looked at this guy's name is Richard. And he said, Richard, the truth is, whether you ever come to know Jesus or not, whether you ever come into alignment of what we believe about all that stuff or not. I'm just glad you're here. And I want you to know, you're always welcome here. You're part of us. And I love you. And a small group of people over here in that auditorium just spontaneously blurted out, me too. And Jim said, what did you just say? And then a bigger group around that group said, me too. And then he looked at the church and he said, what about you? And I'll do it now. What about you? Me too. too. For anybody and everybody. And the whole thing erupted in me too. And that's how that became their slogan. Right? Because it's a, a wide welcome. Hey, we're all strugglers. We're all sinners in need of the same Savior. We're, we're all in the same category. And that's why they called it, that's their version of a Me Too church. To say, hey, everybody's welcome. Whether you ever agree with all this stuff and all that, you're just, just, we just love you and we want you to be here. And yeah, we're going to point each other to truth because his, his truth is good and pleasing and perfect. But and there's lots of grace here. Second thing is submit to Jesus' better way. All of us. That, that come as you are, but realize, man, who wants to stay the same? Who doesn't want transformation? Don't we want our life to be better? And so therefore, why not come, like, surrender, just with our arms up. Just say, okay, Jesus, I, do whatever in your life you want me to do, because I trust you. You're good. I, and, and I want to align around what you say, and I, I want to grow, and I want to take steps, and I want to submit to what you teach. I mean, I, it, it's a, it is, is a wide welcome but to the path that Jesus sets for us, because it is good. It leads to flourishing. He's the creator. He knows how it works. And so let me encourage you. That man, come as you are, but also come ready to submit to what God wants for you because it's good. It's not arbitrary. And let's help each other in that. And I want you to speak into my life and help me align with truth and, and love me enough to do that. And then let's love like Jesus. So love like he loved. A wide welcome. The widest of welcomes. To a narrow path over time. And we've talked about that, what it looks like in church. Well, let's think about what that's like just in our relationships. Because sometimes it does get tricky, this grace-truth tension. 
Like, do I go to that event? Do I have this person, you know, this couple stay in my house? Do I do, do I go to the wedding? Do I do this? Or what, all these little things that we have, how do, how do I respond to that person? And, and sometimes it's like, oh, I don't know what to do. And I don't want to compromise grace. I don't want to compromise truth. I don't, you know, we feel that tension. And let me say this. That when you feel that tension and you don't know what to do, like, should I do this or that, grace, truth, and you feel that tension, when push comes to shove, tilt to, tilt to the grace side. I'm not, that's not denying truth, because the greatest truth in the world is grace, okay? And it's God's kindness that leads to repentance, is what Romans 2 says. It's not repentance that leads to God's kindness. Does that make sense? It's not you repent and God will be kind. It's God's kindness leads to repentance. And, and I say do the grace tilt because that's God's character. That's what Jesus did. He, grace always preceded truth. And it's not just like, well, Jesus is that way, but God the Father, you know, like Old Testament, he wasn't very gracious. Like he was, he's, you know, Jesus is cool, but God the Father, he's kind of the grumpy older dad, you know. No. Uh, Jesus shows us what God is like. In, in the Bible, James, Jesus' brother, said, well, here's what God's like. His mercy triumphs over his justice. Which is really good, because all of us would be hosed if it didn't. His mercy triumphs over his justice. It's not that his justice doesn't matter, but his mercy triumphs over it. And so therefore, man, I just say, when, you, when you're in a tough spot, go with God's character on that. And I've told our staff, hey, don't, I mean, I'd rather us not make mistakes, and, but if we're going to make mistakes, let's make, and it's grace, truth, tension, let's make a grace mistake. And, um, and, and, I, and I've told them, I'll cover every grace mistake. I mean, we may debrief it and say, you know what, that, that was a mistake. And we're going to learn from it. But if we're going to make a mistake, make a grace mistake. Because that's, that's God's character. That's his tilt. And, and it's, God's, it's God's grace and, and kindness that does lead somewhere. It leads to repentance, leads to truth. And that's important too. But hope you know what I'm saying there when you're in a tight spot. And ultimately, this is something, like we said, that we can't do on our own. And I want us to hear John again. This is in 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another. You remember the brand? To love one another the way Jesus loved us. Dear friends, let us love one another, for, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We love because he first loved us. John is saying is, everybody who knows God will love. Because that's the fruit. And the only way we can love the way Jesus loves, the only way we can live the brand, is if we open up our life to God's love. And it's his love that fills us and then pours out to others. It's not us just trying to love at our level. Jesus didn't say, this is how people know you're my disciples, if you try your best to love people. Like, be a really good, you know, just, just love like the best human you know. He said, no, love like Jesus loves. 
which is God who took on humanity. That's a different level. And the only way we can do that is as God fills us up with his love for us that we can then pour out to others. And so here's how we're going to end this series and end today is we're going to open up our lives to God's love for us and ask him to fill us with his love so that we can then reflect that to other people. And then we can increasingly, this is another Bible command, walk in love. And that we would be people everywhere we go where love just pours out in a way that transforms. In a way that leads people to Jesus. In a way that, that who can transform their life and, and all of that. And, and that's why we're actually going gonna to pray now and then next week we're going to do a worship rally. And even though next week we start a new series, we're going to cap off the series with this worship event because we want to open up our life to God in a fresh way as a community and as individuals to say, God, just overwhelm us with your love. Overwhelm us with your power. Overwhelm us with your spirit. God, fill us so that we can then go out and spill that love out on our world. And you'll hear more details about that at your campus. Um, but it, it'll be at the Legacy Campus next week at 5.30 on Sunday. I probably just messed that up, but I'm pretty sure that's right. But let's go before God right now in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us. It is something that we will spend all eternity trying to grasp. I'm reminded of Paul's prayer and for the Ephesians where he says, I pray that somehow by God's almighty power, he will give you the ability to begin to grasp the height and depth and length and breadth of his love for you and to know that love that surpasses knowledge. God, would you help us somehow by your almighty power begin to grasp the height and depth and length of your love for us? Would you fill us with your presence, fill us with your love so that we can then spill that out everywhere we are, everywhere you place us, everywhere we go. God, I pray that this faith community, that our church would be the most loving place on the planet, reflecting your heart. I pray that everywhere we go, we'd be the most loving person there, that we would be people who love like Jesus loves. And that's what we'd be known for, so that we can win over a world that is increasingly moving away. And Father, we know that can only come from you. It's a supernatural work. So God, would you do that supernatural work in us? In Jesus' name, amen.